You're listening to a podcast by Change My Relationship, featuring licensed marriage and family therapist and author, Carla Downing. These podcasts are designed to provide you with practical solutions based on biblical truths for all your relationships. Today, Carla will be interviewing a guest who has experienced a relationship problem and successfully worked through it. So thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to have Annette Altman on with me. She's the founder of The Mend Project, and she's going to explain that to you at the end of our conversation. But she's going to talk to us about her experience in being married to a man who was emotionally and verbally abusive. And I know that this affects a lot of you out there. A lot of you are struggling with some type of abuse in your relationship. And um, Annette is one of those success stories where she was able to confront it and her husband actually changed. And what's even more exciting is I'm going to be able to have her husband on shortly and you'll be able to hear his story. So welcome, Annette. Thank you for having me, Carla. I look, I've been looking forward to this. Yes, it's taken us quite a while to put our schedules <laughs> together, but we finally did it. So, okay. Can you tell me about your marriage? Yes. And I knew you were going to ask me that question. So I went back and looked in some notes, you know, because sometimes when you reflect back, it's not as accurate as when you're in the moment. And I had gone to a marriage intensive with my husband once, and I had to just briefly describe what it was like. I would say my husband was not a rager. Um, he's not, he never called me names. Wasn't really a screamer. He was more of a manipulator. He was more of a covert emotionally abuser versus an overt one. Not that there was never overtness. He would punish me with the silent treatment. He would stonewall me with a myriad of deflections and defensiveness rather than just take five minutes to resolve a little situation. It would turn into a huge argument because he would never move to a solution or resolution. And so if I could just read to you a little bit that I wrote, I said, I might ask for his thoughts and tell him I'd love to share mine, but rather than doing so, he stonewalls. If it's regarding a need of mine, he says, I don't tell you what I need. I take care of my own needs. That's how I was raised and it worked for me. I prefer you take care of your own needs. So if I would ever ask him, well, what actually do you need from me? His answer was always adoration. So that puts it in context. He wanted my complete adoration when the last I understood, we adore God, but we don't show adoration unconditionally to anyone we're in an interpersonal relationship. It's much more complicated and deep than that, but that was his expectation. And then I wrote, it feels hopeless. How can I have a fulfilling relationship? What could be a five or 10 minute conversation turns into two hours of deflections, aggressive defensiveness and attacks. I don't have the tools to exit the conversation. And I'm embarrassed because I've only recently realized that his rants were actually contradicting himself. So he would give me a list of arguments. And then in the next hour, he would contradict his own arguments. It was just for the purpose of arguing. I've always perceived him as an honorable man. He has a very good business reputation. He runs a large corporation and is very honorable in business. So it was very confusing to me because I perceived that he would never tell me a lie. Yet 
he would break his promises so regularly and breaking promises is actually a lie, but I would think that it was some other problem. Like why is he forgetting or why is there never any follow through? He would exit the relationship for days or weeks or even longer. He recently stated that I don't keep my agreements because it feels like control. So he would say I'm controlling him if there was some kind of boundary or some kind of mutually agreed upon agreement. In the counseling office, he would softly say, I'm sorry about that. I really am. However, when we would get home, I feel like I'm in a crazy house because he would just start the deflections and putting me through the paces all over again. And I wrote, I'm so confused as to what might only take 10 minutes of positive energy becomes two hours of negative energy that ultimately sabotages our relationship for months. He has many times said, humility means humiliation. I feel like I'm going crazy because the softness of his overall disposition and the way he twists words around confuses me and undermines me. I don't actually know what hit me or how to respond. It's longer, but I think you get the point. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things that jump out that are very common and abusive, especially emotionally and verbally abusive relationships is confusion and feeling like you're crazy. That's common. And it's all has to do with when you've named some of the discounting, the minimizing of what you're saying, the twisting of your words, the broken promises, denying that there was a promise, blaming it back on you that he wasn't able to keep the promise and saying it's because you're you're controlling. So those are all real kind of common threads that are in abusive relationships. And the crazy making part, can you just talk a little bit about how it feels to be in that place of confusion and crazy making? Oh boy, I sure can. I cannot overemphasize enough the amount of stress that it causes when you can't seem to gain clarity of your situation. And because he was so determined to win every argument, and because I was under the illusion that he was honorable and would never lie or manipulate me. So because I believed him to be honorable and I witnessed him being very honorable in a lot of difficult situations through work. It was, it just never entered my mind that he would be intentionally manipulating me and trying to power over me. I was just genuinely, I just felt like our relationship is so complicated. Why can't I solve these problems? Maybe I'm not articulating myself well enough. Maybe I'm not good at relationships. Maybe I'm unlovable. I felt all these things were possibly my problem, my fault, because I was just so naive. I didn't understand that he was coming from an entirely different worldview interpersonally than where I was coming from. I was an empath. So I had plenty of empathy for him, yet I wasn't experiencing it in return. And I didn't know how to identify that. I was just blind or blindsided in my experience. The stress increased and the confusion increased. And the more that you're beaten down, not literally beaten, but emotionally minimized and your voice doesn't count and you're blamed for things that you aren't really responsible for. But the more those things happen, the more you self-doubt, my trauma increased. So I actually developed post-traumatic stress disorder. How serious... Stress and confusion is when you are in a crazy making situation. 
Well, when did you actually begin to think this might be emotional or verbal abuse? How did that come about? Boy, for me, it took a really long time because we had always been in therapy. We tried a few different therapists and we had the resources to be able to tap into some people that were renowned published authors, you know, things of that nature. Not one of them ever said the word abuse. And so I didn't have the clarity. I didn't even know about emotional abuse. I thought abuse was if you are struck, something of that nature. Once we did this one intensive, they still didn't say the word abuse, which is one reason why I won't recommend this place. Um, it took them eight days of watching my husband throw out false accusations and be very defensive. It took so much time and money for them to come to the conclusion where they actually said, we've made a mistake. We're really sorry. We thought the problem was one thing and now we see it as something different. Your husband, and he said this in the presence of my husband, avoids accountability and avoids responsibility. So that was just the first clue that I could really sit in knowing that it wasn't my fault, but it still didn't give me the clarity to then seek the resources that would have been helpful for me if they had identified it as emotional abuse. Then I would have contacted a domestic violence agency, taken personal empowerment program, or I would have sought out information on the internet about it, you know, and educated myself, purchased books about it. Right. So it didn't really happen for me until I read Patricia Evans' book, The Verbally Abusive Relationship, which so many people, that has been their segue into clarity, is reading a book like that, any book really like that. Yeah, and I can say for myself, I'm a, I'm a verbal and emotional abuse survivor also. And for me, that book was a lifesaver also because it gave a definition to the things that were happening, the behaviors, the gave names to it, it gave examples, it explained the whole dynamics of the relationship. And I referred back to it many times when things would kind of escalate. And I felt like my world was turned upside down. And it isn't uncommon for women, especially and men that go to a counselor and are describing an emotional and verbal abuse, relation, abusive relationship for the counselor not to identify it. I've had that same experience explained to me many times. I've had many people come to me in counseling where I've said to them, you're in an abusive relationship. And they'll say to me, well, I've been to many counselors and none of them have ever said that. And I've I, I can't agree with you more. In fact, oh boy, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of victims as I'm sure you have, and it is a common theme. It's, it's very sad because they place a lot of authority in a marriage and family therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they're just not trained. They don't learn about this in their academic studies unless they take continuing education units and really decide that they're going to equip themselves. This prolonged period of time that you're in couples therapy just exacerbates the trauma of the victim because it's not being identified. And they're, they're hearing messages like, well, there's mutual responsibility. And I, I had one therapist say, well, it's an 80-20 situation. He's 80% responsible and I'm 20% responsible. I, I would express frustration and anger. And so somehow that made me responsible. And yet that would be the only thing my husband would then want to focus on, the 20%. It was as though the 20% was 100% of the problem. And so it's really unhelpful. And in fact, I just did 
you can um, find it on our YouTube channel. I just did an hour talk on why couples therapy doesn't work. If any of your listeners want to go to that. Yes. At the end, I want you to give your, all your information, your website, all that okay. you can find more information on your ministry for sure, because she's got an amazing ministry and, and it's absolutely necessary. What was your childhood like? What do you think made you vulnerable to this type of relationship? You know, that's an interesting question because I, I can definitely pinpoint a couple of things that made me vulnerable, but I've also interviewed so many victims that had a really loving environment and they were just completely blindsided. They never knew how they weren't taught, like how to discern. They'd only had positive role modeling. And so I don't think it can always be pinpointed on something like that. But for me, there was an event when I was in the third grade where I was writing a report on John F. Kennedy and we didn't have whiteout and it was my final draft. So I'd already turned in my rough draft graded final draft. And I used too many pieces of paper and the teacher screamed at the front of the room and held up some papers that I had put in the trash with mistakes on them and said, who's doing a report on John F. Kennedy. And the the entire classroom was so traumatized by her, how overtly yelling she was that it was like parting of the Red Sea. The students just went to the walls and I had to walk up the middle where she proceeded to grab me and shake me like a milkshake and dug her fingernails into my underarms where it drew blood. And I was so scared. I ran out and ran straight to the principal's office in tears, telling him what happened. And he said, well, you can go home. And when I went home, my parents didn't back me up. They said, the teacher's always right. Even showing them the marks on my arms and explaining the situation. And I learned then that I couldn't really trust my gut. I didn't have unconditional support. And when a child doesn't have that unconditional support and advocacy, they doubt themselves. It undermines their sense of confidence and Mm self-assuredness. And I can also say, if you couple that with the fact that whenever I would talk to my parents about anything emotional, like if I would say, this isn't fair or the way you're handling this isn't right because my brother got to do this. And now you're saying I can't do that or whatever it was, they would shut my voice down. I was not allowed to speak. They would encourage me to speak out about other issues, other people's issues. But when it came to the interpersonal emotional interactions, they would snuff me out and get very sarcastic and say, oh, you're so ungrateful and you're grounded or something like that. So I think that if we don't help our children really develop a sense of self and encourage them and meet them where they are and strengthen their voice, Mm -hmm. then we are actually it. So they minimized me. And by doing that, I think we groom our children to choose an abusive spouse. Minimization doesn't allow the child to develop a strong sense of self. Right. There has to be validation of emotions, even if you disagree with the child's behavior. But I agree with you. I say the same thing. Not every, you'll read in a lot of books that you are going to be codependent and then you'll be in a difficult relationship or you'll pick an unhealthy relationship. I say, no, there are healthy people that get into an unhealthy relationship and they get sucked into it. And then the longer they're into it, the more confused they get and the more it begins to undermine who they are. And they can find themselves in a completely crazy relationship 
not coming into it unhealthy at all. I totally agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. So now for your situation, you had an, an, an interesting thing happen with your, I think you said support group of 14 years at church or women's Bible yeah. study. It was a couple's Bible study, actually. And my husband and I were members for 14 years. It was not a large group. We traveled the world together. We went on ministry trips. We did all kinds of things together. We broke bread every week. We celebrated a Thanksgiving dinner, a Christmas dinner. They were about 10 years older than I was, most of the members in the group. And so I felt that I could go to the leader, the woman's leader of my Bible study group and confide in her. I came to the point in the relationship where I knew I had to separate because my post-traumatic stress disorder was manifesting into all kinds of physiological illnesses, like serious ones, like latent autoimmune diabetes. And I couldn't eat normal foods. Like I couldn't eat fresh berries and I couldn't eat sushi. It would, I would immediately go into a full like food poisoning reaction where I was uncontrollably vomiting and would have to go to the emergency room and they would have to give me IVs and stop it because it wouldn't stop on its own. And things like I went to the emergency room like that 13 times. I just knew that I got to a place where my husband, as is very common, abuse escalates over time. And so as his abuse was escalating and my emotional and physiological well-being was deteriorating, I knew that I had to separate and stop couples therapy. And so I went to the leader of my Bible study and rather than hear me and believe me and support me, she immediately went into instructing me, telling me how I needed to be a better wife in this way and that way and saying, you know, well, what did you do to cause this. Basically, it was just all the wrong things that you aren't supposed to say to a victim is what was directed at me. And she wouldn't even allow me to complete my sentences. She would interrupt me and redirect the conversation to instructions that she was giving me. When you're traumatized, particularly, you really need someone to be willing to listen and sit with you and allow your own pace to express what you're saying. But when someone is interrupting you and accusing you and doing those things and not believing you and minimizing the abuse. Even though I didn't use the word abuse, I said, I just can't tolerate it anymore. I was in a heap of tears and yet I received no compassion. And what then went on from there was I brought an advocate with me to meet with her a second time. And again, I was in a heap of tears because of all the interruptions and just trying to get my words out. And it was still, it fell on deaf ears. And so from that point on, it got even worse. The male leader of the Bible study called me and said, this is going to be a difficult conversation, Annette. He said, if you are not back in couples therapy within 90 days, you will never be invited back to our group again. What is very typical for victims, as you know, is that they will go and confide in someone who they know will not then totally judge their spouse because they're trying to find help for their marriage. So they'll confide in people that love both parties. And oftentimes, because those other individuals never see the abusive behavior in public, they automatically align with the abuser and they judge the victim. And it's so common. And in all my interviews with victims, they almost always wanted to talk more about what I call double abuse 
rather than the original abuse, because that was the most overwhelming part. And that's how it was for me. I was so overwhelmed by this attitude. And then they breached my confidentiality, told other people in the group, and then they went out into the broader community, my broader social circle of Christian friends, and told them not to talk to me either in an effort to drive me back into couples therapy. So I was so harshly judged. I received no compassion. And because I would not comply, which I, I knew I couldn't go back into couples therapy, it was unhelpful. I hadn't found anyone who was properly identifying and naming and confronting these behaviors and supporting me the way I needed to be supported, I didn't comply and they never ever phoned me again. I never heard from them again after 14 years. And so you've never talked to anybody in that group since then? That's it? I haven't. Oh my gosh. Even if I see them in a social circle, it might be a short hello, but they never take the initiative. I take the initiative. It's so interesting. And even though my husband and I did an article for the local, it's a pretty big newspaper, the Orange County Register in this area about covert emotional abuse and how that was the problem in our marriage and how we came through that. Even after that was in the newspaper and they knew what the story was, they never apologized. I mean, and I'm sparing you, there, there were so many things that they did and said to me that were so brutal in public, in front of other people. It was like high school, like mean girl society or something. It was very harsh. And I never treated them in like kind. I just pulled away. But I have to tell you that their treatment of me exacerbated my post-traumatic stress into complex post-traumatic stress. Because now for the first time, I felt like it was hopeless, mm -hmm. like I wasn't going to find help. And that they were stealing my identity away from me by slandering me. The identity that I felt that I had firmly rooted in my social, broader Christian social circle, we were really active at church and so forth. I felt that my identity was taken from me and that there was nothing that I could do to overcome it because it was group think, and it was a group effort to carry this out against me. And at the same time, they circled around my husband which my husband will tell you emboldened his faulty thinking and escalated the abuse even more. So now I was firmly isolated and the abuse escalated, even though we were separated, it was this escalation, yet I was isolated and had, had very little support. Thank goodness I had a couple girlfriends that really stood by me and I found more support in the secular community by other friends of mine. So I wasn't fully alone, but I felt alone, at least completely alone out of this community that I had been involved with for so long. Well, most people wouldn't even in that situation have the strength to continue on their journey to get help. They would succumb to the demands of the group, give in, say, I must be crazy, I must be making it up, and go back to couples therapy to maintain their social uh, connection because that was just so much pressure, so much denial, so much abuse of you that, I mean, it was amazing that you were able to stand strong with that and that you were to continue on your journey to get getting healthy. 
Thank you. Let me add one other thing they did. It's interesting because this happens so much. There was one person in the Bible study group that stood with me, one couple, but they didn't stand with me enough to leave the group or anything like that, but they just were sympathetic to me and believed me. And they brought a message to me that the only way the women would agree to have lunch with me or to meet with me or anything is if I made a commitment to not speak a word about my husband, because they viewed it as I was a gossip. And yet, ironically, they went and gossiped wrong information, slandering me to the broader community. That's just crazy making. And that's something that's often said. And there's, there's, we could make a whole list of things that are typically said in church that are not good for victims that cause victims to go silent and to keep their pain to themselves, or to think that they have to, or they're crazy, or they're making it up, or what they are experiencing is okay. But one of those is you can't say anything bad about your husband because yeah. you'll be disrespecting him. You'll be maligning his, his reputation. Again, I often say it's, they, it's scripture balance of scripture. You don't look at one verse in the Bible and say, here's the whole thing of what we do in marriage. You look at everything. And we know Matthew 18 tells you to go to a person and confront that person with their sin that's affecting you and that you can see is hurting that person your husband and what he was doing in your marriage was hurting your marriage, hurting him, hurting you. He didn't listen. It's okay to go to a second person when he doesn't listen to the second person. It's okay to go to a group that you should be accountable to. That is so scriptural. And yet saying that you can never say anything negative about him is just, it's, it shuts you down and it's just so, so demoralizing. Absolutely. I think it's just one of the many typical ways that victims are silenced, like you said, in the church. And when you think about it, I went to people who I knew loved my husband because I wanted his reputation to be protected. I just wanted help. And even so, I was judged as being disparaging of him rather than, I mean, we had brought a number, all of us had brought a number of our problems and burdens and concerns to this Bible study group over the years. Oh, so you were the first one. Everyone brought like with their children or, you know, I think I was the first one that brought a marital concern. And everyone um, else pretended that everything was fine. Everyone else pretended. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And what I'm looking back, I can see how patriarchal that group was. I mean, now there are so many red flags that I missed about how women need to completely submit. And I look at the way, like the leader of our Bible study would always change her voice almost to like Minnie Mouse. If, if he would disagree with her, she had to almost become childlike for him to be able to hear her. If she held her own, he would just shut her down. There was that and many other signs about how they just believed that the male was the head of the household and what he said went. And one woman said to me, you're not dealing with anything any of the rest of us aren't dealing with. Oh my, <laughs> that's probably the truest statement that she ever spoke. <laughs> uh, so absolutely, because you know we know in the church that it's not okay often to talk about what's really going on inside our homes. And we go to church, we look around, everybody looks perfect. And we think, oh my gosh, I'm alone. I need to be quiet. What are some other things that are said in church that cause victims to discount what they're going through? Well, I think that a lot of pastors don't understand that emotional abuse is one of the most damaging forms of domestic violence. 
So unless somebody is struck, they don't validate them. They don't give it credence. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I I always, there's certain things I hear from the pulpit and I'll just cringe because I'll look around and think how many people here are taking that wrong. And one of those is, oh, you can't divorce, you can't separate, unless of course you're being physically abused. God doesn't want you to be physically abused. In that case, you need to separate. And then I think, oh my gosh, that is giving just all out approval to absolutely to emotional and verbal abusers and saying emotional and verbal abuse is not bad. And exactly. Ignoring how physiologically harmful it actually is. And they're suffering more physiologically than if you got punched. Exactly. It's psychological violence and it is violence and it's Mm -hmm. all falls under the domestic violence. And, you know, it's, and we're not saying here that it's only women that are abused because there are men that are in abusive relationships. Absolutely. And so that totally exists. So we're not saying anything that that can't, but um, she's talking about her experience and what she's gone through. And uh, there, the patriarchal view of marriage is absolutely does increase a man's feeling that he is entitled to abuse his wife or to control his wife or to tell his wife to submit. And I love one of the messages uh, my pastor gave where he said to the men, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you to tell your wife to submit to you. It tells you to love your wife as your own body. You don't get to tell her to submit. She gets to choose to do that as unto the Lord, how, how she sees fit. And so that whole idea of this whole patriarchy, my husband too, when we first got married, literally said to me, and I was so young, I was 20, literally said to me, I need to teach you. I need to show you how to do things right. And I instinctively knew, no, you don't have a right to teach me. I'm your wife. I'm your partner. But that was his viewpoint. And he eventually got to the point where he will now say, oh, no, the Bible does not tell me that I have a right to teach her, to control her. She's my equal. God wants me to treat her that way. But it is a belief system. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they're very entrenched. You know, I say the pillars of abuse are a faulty belief system, image management, and entitlement. And this belief system, you know, I'm not against complementarian churches. I just say when I train churches that you have a greater responsibility to really teach clearly what is and what is not abuse. If you're going to teach male headship, you have a greater responsibility than an egalitarian church to really define what is acceptable and what is not, or you are inadvertently fostering abuse. It's I think just that it goes along with it. Absolutely profound statement. And I totally agree with it. You're basically saying to them, don't teach submission unless you teach balanced submission. Mm-hmm. Because there are marriages where the man is going to abuse that and if submission anytime a woman comes up to me and she says my husband tells me that the problem in our our marriage is that I don't submit I I know immediately that the submission is being used to control her and it's unhealthy that's right that's a big red flag big red flag so tell me about the maze that you use you know not everyone is in a covertly emotionally abusive relationship like I described when we first started at the beginning of the show. 
those were some of the confusing tactics and defensive deflections, you know, things like that. Other people are going to deal with outright name calling and loud put downs and things that are more obvious and more able for the victim to discern that they're being abused. But for me, I was so confused that I, God gave it to me in a dream one night that a conversation with my husband at the time was like a maze where there's an entry point and there's an exit point and only a healthy conversation can reach that resolution, that exit point. And a healthy conversation would be mutual respect, mutual listening, mutual understanding, um, a desire to compromise and to reach a solution. And even if they agree to disagree, it's done with mutual respect. There's, you don't withhold love, you don't punish, you don't try to power over, you allow the individuality of each person and it's a very loving um, exchange. However, when you're dealing with somebody who is covertly abusive, every effort you make to try to move to a resolution, to try to move your way through the maze is met with a dead end. And that dead end is different forms of covert abuse. It could be blame shifting, denial, lying, false accusation, catastrophizing, scapegoating, and many others. We know there's so many terms and definitions, and we provide a comprehensive list on our website of the different behaviors. But that's so confusing because a victim then, let's just say any one of those behaviors repeated in a pattern is enough to be destructive to a relationship. So if somebody was continually lying, 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 that obviously would undermine the trust in the relationship. And the victim would be able to say, my spouse continually lies. They would be able to identify it. But when this abuser is using multiple behaviors, you know, many behaviors, anything to stonewall the conversation, it's often too confusing for a victim to be able to identify the patterns. And if you can't identify the patterns, you get stuck like what I was in a free fall in a cyclone going downward, not being able to obtain the clarity of what my circumstances were. So what did it take for your husband to change? And he's going to talk about it. So you don't have to give us everything, but from the standpoint of the victim, what did you have to do to get him to change? I had to get to a place where I could see that no progress was coming and my situation was only getting worse. And the only way that I could take care of myself was to separate from the situation, which was a really difficult decision for me to make because I loved my husband and we had a lot of good times together. He was a great supporter. He did a lot of loving things towards me. So that's what made it even more confusing, but I knew I couldn't go another day and I had to separate. You know, I just want to warn victims out there. It's always a very difficult decision to make, to come to that point, but it is the only pathway to finding your voice and to finding self-respect and to living a life where there's mutual, where there's reciprocity, mutual love and mutual honor and all the cool ingredients that go along with a healthy relationship, the ones that we thrive on it's a very difficult decision. And for me, I just didn't have a choice, but I, the warning is that 
you're going to go through a tremendous grieving process because it is very hard and your spouse might pursue you relentlessly and harass you, or you may have a spouse like what my husband did, where he just cut off all communication and would only talk to my personal assistant and just completely iced me out of any communication while he relished all the support that he got from our Bible study community and so forth. Yeah, which is really scary because you're doing it's it you it's not easy to get to that point and it's not easy to maintain that strength and your voice and you don't necessarily want the relationship to be over when you get to that point. Sometimes women and men will make that decision I'm done, but a lot of times it's please go get help. And then he disappears and you have no control and you know you it's panic time. It really is because I thought I was setting a firm boundary. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore unless you get help. Unless you're what I asked for was really one thing. I wanted him to have an educated, knowledgeable accountability partner who was able to transparently see what was taking place. And I said, I'll do anything if you do that one thing. But he refused that one thing. So it was a boundary set setting for me because I didn't see any other way that I could move forward. I couldn't continue the chaos. Like I had to stop the chaos, although it just created more chaos because of what happened, the double abuse I experienced and how it emboldened him and how he was treating me. So it's not for the faint at heart. It takes a lot of courage. (laughs) But you have to get to the point exactly where you did, where you're going to say, this either has to change or I have to be done to survive personal survival to survive it's it that's it and if it doesn't change you have to be willing to let go and the change process is lengthy complicated and hard and many abusers most abusers don't get there they don't do enough fully agree with you therapy they don't do enough get enough insight they don't learn what they have to do and you've got to have the strength to hold them accountable so it is not And the more you set a boundary, the more they crash the boundary. You have to be so firm and be willing to follow through on your ultimatums. Yes. You have to be willing to try to not have fear, to try to have support. Do it. Even if you're afraid and you have to be willing to lose the relationship to win a good relationship, like you said, but boy, it's hard. Yeah, I agree. Very hard. Do you ever have women and men do a contract? with the person, write out the behaviors that they will not tolerate. I've done that sometimes. I'll tell people in descriptive words, not write out the behavior. I will not tolerate name calling. I will not tolerate ridicule. I will not tolerate discounting. And then they can remind the abuser when that happens, you are discounting me now. Please stop doing that. I fully agree with you. I think clarity for the victim is so important, but clarity for the abuser is also so critical that they see in writing what they're doing because you can't escape what is in writing. You have to face it. And that way, if the one who's causing the harm ignores what is in writing, that also brings clarity to the victim that they're not going to take any steps to improve themselves. And that's very important data for the victim to have. We talked about this before, Carla, that, you know, narcissists are abusers, but not all abusers are narcissists. So oftentimes just by clarifying these behaviors for them, a healthy person from a wellspring inside themselves will say, I don't want to do these harmful things if it's hurting my spouse. 
yep. I'm, I want to change. And for those that are not pathological in nature, the change isn't that hard. It, it might be some bad family habits they learned along the way or something they learned in college or, but it's not like fully embedded in their psyche. They're able to replace those behaviors with more positive behaviors. So it's worth the effort to see if you are with someone who is of that more healthy mindset and those who absolutely won't, they might say, if, if you put, don't minimize me, they might, a, a narcissist will stop minimizing you, but then he or she will start blame shifting you. You know, they just switch to another tactic to continue controlling you and stonewalling you. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but yeah, I totally agree with you. The getting that clarity is absolutely essential. And that that's why being able to define the behaviors and describe the behaviors and see them and go, and even to yourself to validate yourself. Oh, that was just, he just discounted me. He just minimized me. That's not okay. And then you can see it and recognize, and then you see the impact and then giving them that ultimatum, which is to get healthy, agree. And I often say somebody who's going to change will say to you, not only do I, do I grieve the fact that I've done these things to you, but I will do whatever it takes to stop doing these things to you. And please remind me if I do and point it out because I don't want to. Absolutely. You know, you're so right. And I think when you write it down and the couple is both clear about the behaviors that have been taking place, it takes the victim out of that mode of accommodating where there's they're blaming themselves and they're accommodating the abuser. It's so important to come at it that way to gain equal footing. So it's not a power over kind of dynamic. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell me about your ministry. What do you do? Tell people where they can find information. Okay. Before I do that, can I just mention one other thing? Absolutely. I I also believe that if a couple is separating, if you don't know that you definitely want a divorce, if you're separating because you want to see if you can find the proper help, I recommend a controlled separation where there's a contract that says how much money you'll each spend and won't spend, who you will be confiding in, who you won't be, what friends to avoid if there's been some kind of group participation in the abuse to create a safe space so that the marriage is still in a container. It's just giving the couple space from each other but knowing that they're still honoring the vows of the marriage. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You agree. How many times are you going to date? Are you going to have intimate relations? Are you, you know, going to see each other a certain number of times? Who's going to go to counseling? All that kind of stuff. It does make it safe. Otherwise, separation can just push you apart and make it more likely that you're going to not get back together. Totally. So now tell us about the MEND project. Well, the MEN Project is a 501c3 organization that I founded to basically to educate, to equip, and to restore all those that are impacted by abuse. And when I say all those impacted, it could be somebody who's experiencing sexual harassment, somebody who's experiencing domestic violence, somebody who's gone through child molestation. We talk a lot about emotional abuse and covert emotional abuse is a common thread in all forms of abuse other than a single event like sexual or physical assault. It's whenever there's a relationship, there's covert emotional abuse present in an abusive situation. And so we train a lot about that. We provide resources and dialogue and tools for victims so that they can take it 
to their therapist or pastor and advocate for themselves so that they have the clarity in their hand. It's harder for a therapist or a pastor to minimize your story when you're showing them in writing what an expert organization on the topic is saying. And so it's, it's a good tool. And then we also train anyone who would be a first responder. And I, I say anyone could be a first responder. You could be a mother, a sister, a brother, a father. You can be a law enforcement. You can be a pastor, a therapist, anyone that a victim is most likely to feel safe to disclose their story of abuse you have the responsibility as a first responder. And so we train churches, we train a lot of therapists, and we train a lot of frontline organizations, like organizations that deal with marginalized communities where they're going to experience covert emotional abuse, boys and girls clubs, where the mentor is going to experience stories being told to them by the children and knowing how to respond, that sort of thing. You've told me about some of it and I need to take time to go on your website. Sounds like an amazing resource. So if somebody wanted you to come into an organization, you would do that. They could contact you through your website. Absolutely. And what we do, because we've found that there's always some level of unconscious bias present in all of us, actually, every organization has different cultural challenges. And so we spend time with them in advance to try to unpack the challenges that they're facing in their community. And then we tailor the training around that and the hypotheticals for the breakout sessions to give them a deeper understanding of the challenges that they're facing and and the solutions. So it's not just like a cookie cutter training. It's when we go into an organization or into a church, we try to really do our preliminary work to identify all the red flags and all the areas where there are trends of biases or trends of ignorance or things of that nature. And in a non-judgmental way, we try to just be supportive and help them come to see the things that are holding them back in responding in a healing way to victims and to abusers, because we train how to respond to abusers in ways that is most likely going to lead them towards a path of healing. Wow. That sounds amazing. Absolutely. I can't imagine that there's any organization that wouldn't benefit from that. Mm, thank you. Because verbal emotional abuse is very, very, very common. It's an epidemic. It's an epidemic. And that relates and so to all- is double abuse. It's so an epidemic. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. What's the one takeaway that you would offer to someone listening? Be kind to yourself. Don't believe the lies. If you have to let go of friendships, let them go and find new friendships you can do it. Step outside and take a class, do anything to put you in a new social circle where you can get the love and support that you need and then make the difficult decisions. You know, I'm not saying what the right decision is because it's different for everyone based on finances and children and all kinds of things, but don't let fear hold you back from making the decision that you know in your gut is the right one. Absolutely. I would agree get the support that you deserve because you do deserve just so the support. What is your website? It's the mendproject.com. Okay. Very and good. mend is M E N D like mending. Cause we look at community as being potentially able to really mend the broken heart. That's what we call the mend project. And we have a YouTube channel. You can follow us on Instagram 
and we are we're actually doing a live Facebook once or twice a month um, where we take different topics about abuse and we dig a little deeper. So you can go to Facebook and check us out. Awesome. I love that. Send me a link to the next one. I'll put that up on my Facebook too for you. Thank you. So thank you. This has been everything that I imagined the interview with you was going to be. We could do many, many more, but they can also go to your website and get that information. And I really look forward to having your husband on next. Thank you, Carla. All right. Thank you. Take good care. All right. Thank you for listening to Change My Relationship. And I hope you'll come back and listen to some more of our podcast, especially when Annette's husband is on. Thank you for listening to this interview on Change My Relationship. We hope you will subscribe to these podcasts and share them with your friends. Carla would love to hear from you. She welcomes ideas for future podcasts as well as your feedback on how the podcast have helped your life and relationships. You can email her at carla at changemyrelationship.com. For more information on Change My Relationship and Carla Downing's ministry, including her books, studies, devotionals, podcasts, and YouTube videos, visit changemyrelationship.com.